Section three of Their Yesterdays by Harold Bell Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Knowledge. The green of the pastures and the gold of the fields was buried so deeply under banks of snow that no one could say, Here the cattle fed and the buttercups grew, there the grain was harvested, here the corn stood in shocks, there the daisies and meadow grass sheltered the nest of the bobolink. As death calls alike the least and the greatest back to the dust from which they came, so winter laid over the varied and changing scenes of summer a cold, white shroud of wearisome sameness. The birds were hundreds of miles away in their sunny southland haunts. The bees, the butterflies, and many of the tidy wood folk were all snugly tucked in their winter beds, dreaming, perhaps, as they slept, of the sunshiny summer days. In the garden the wind had heaped a grape drift against the hedge on the boy's side, and on the little girl's side, the cherry-tree in the corner stood shivering in its nakedness with bare arms uplifted, as though praying for mercy to the stinging cold wind. In the city the snow, as fast as it fell, was stained by soot and grime, and lay in the streets a mass of filth. The breath of the laboring truck-horses arose from their wide nostrils like clouds of steam, and in the icy air covered their breasts and shoulders and sides with a coat of white frost. The newsboys and vendors of pencils and shoestrings shivered in nooks and corners and doorways, and as the people went with heads bent low before the freezing blasts that swirled through the narrow canyons between the tall buildings, the snowy pavement squeaked loudly under their feet. And the man who had found something to do, from his occupation, began to acquire knowledge. In doing things he began to know things. But the man had to gain first a knowledge of knowledge. He first had to learn this that a man might know all about a thing without ever knowing the thing itself. He had to understand that knowledge is not knowing about a thing, but knowing the thing. When first he had dreamed his manhood dreams, before he had found something to do, the man, quite modestly, thought that he knew a great deal. In his school days he had exhausted many textbooks and had passed many creditable examinations upon many subjects, and so he had thought that he knew a great deal. And he did. He knew a great deal about things. But when he had found something to do, and had tried to do it, he found also very quickly that, although he knew so much about the thing he had to do, he knew very, very little of the thing itself, and that only knowledge of the thing itself could ever help him to realize his dreams. From his occupation he learned this also, that knowledge is not what some other man knows and tells you, but what the thing that you have been found to do makes known to you. Knowledge is not told, cannot be told, to one by another even though the other has it abundantly, for, to the one whom it is told, it remains ever what someone else knows. What the thing that a man finds to do makes known to him, that is knowledge. So knowledge is to be had not from books alone, but rather from life. So idleness is a vicious ignorance, and those who do the most are wisest. Before he had found something to do, the man had called himself a thinker. But when he tried to do the thing that he had found to do, he quickly realized that he had only thought that he thought. He found that he was not at all a thinker, but a listener, a receiver, a rememberer. In his school days, the thoughts of others were offered him, and he, because he had accepted them, called them his own. He came now to understand that thinking is not accepting the thoughts of others, but finding thoughts of your own in whatever it is that you have found to do. Thinking the thoughts of others is a delightful pastime and profitable, but it is not really thinking. Also, if one be blessed with a good memory, he may thus cheaply acquire a reputation for great wisdom, just as one, if he happens to be born with a nose of uncommon length or bigness, 
may attract the attention of the world. But no one should deceive himself. A man, because he is able, better than the multitude, to repeat the thoughts of other men, must not therefore think himself a better thinker than the crowd. No more should the one with the uncommon nose flatter himself that he is necessarily handsome or distinguished in appearance, because the people notice him. He who attracts the attention of the world should inquire most carefully into the reason for the gathering of the crowd, for a crowd will gather as readily to listen to a mountebank as to hear an angel from heaven. To repeat what others have thought is not at all evidence that he who remembers is thinking. Great thoughts are often repeated thoughtlessly. A man's occupation betrays him or establishes his claim to knowledge. That which a man does proclaims that which he thinks or in his thoughtlessness finds him out. Of course, when the man had learned this, he said at first, quite wrongly, that his school days were wasted. He said that when he had called his education was all a mistake, that it was vanity only and wholly worthless. But as he went on gaining ever more and more knowledge from the thing that he was doing, and through that thing, of many other things, he came to understand that his school days were not wasted, but very well spent indeed. He came to see that what he had called education was not a mistake. He came to understand that what was wrong was this. He had considered his education complete, finished. We had only been prepared to begin. He had considered his schooling as an end to be gained, when it was only a means to the end. He had considered his learning as wealth to hold, when it was capital to invest. He had mistaken the thoughts that he received from others for knowledge, when they were given him only to inspire, and to help him in acquiring knowledge. And then, of this knowledge of knowledge gained by the man from his occupation, there was born in him a mighty passion, a burning desire. It was the passion for knowledge. It was the desire to know. To know the thing that he had found to do was not enough. He determined to use that knowledge to gain knowledge of many other things. He felt within himself a new strength stirring, the strength of thought. He saw that knowledge of things led ever to more knowledge, even as link to link in a golden chain. One end of the chain he held in his occupation. The other was somewhere, far beyond his sight, hidden in the mist that shroud the infinite fact, fast to the mighty secret of life itself. Link by link, he determined to follow the chain. From knowing things to knowledge of other things, he would go even until he held in his grip the last link, until he held the key to the riddle, until he knew the answer to the sum of life. And facts, cold, uncompromising, all-powerful, unanswerable facts, should give him this mastery knowledge of life. For him there should be no sentiment to deceive, no illusion to beguile, no fancy to lead astray. As resistlessly as the winter, with snowflake upon snowflake, has buried all the delightful vagaries of summer, so this man, in his passion for knowledge, would have buried all the charming inconsistencies, the beautiful inaccuracies, the lovely pretenses of life. The illusions, the sentiment, the fancies, the poetry of life, he would have buried under the icy sameness of his facts, even as the flowers and grasses were hidden under winter's shroud of snow. But he could not. Under the snow, summer still lived. Under the cold facts of life, the tender sentiments, the fond fancies, the dear illusions have strength, even as the flowers and grasses. I do not know what it was that brought it about. It does not matter what it was. Perhaps it was the sight of some boy coasting down a little hill, on a side street, near where the man lived at this time. Perhaps it was a group of children who, on their way home from school, were waging a merry snow fight. Or perhaps it was the man's own effort to acquire knowledge, 
Or it may be that his brain was weary, that the way of knowledge seemed overlong, that the links in the golden chain were many and passed all too slowly through his hand. I do not know. But whatever it was that did it, the man, as he sat before his fire that winter evening, with a too solid and substantial book, swept away from his grown-up world of facts, back into the no less real world of childhood, back into his yesterdays, to a school day in his yesterdays. Once again he made his way in the morning to the little schoolhouse that stood halfway up a long hill, in the edge of a bit of timber, nearly two miles from his home. The yard, beaten smoothly and hard by many bare and childish feet, was separated from the timber by a rail fence, but was left open in front to any stray horses or cattle that, wandering down the road, might be tempted to rest a little while in the shade of a great tree that stood near the center of the little clearing. The stumps of the other forest beauties that had once, like this tree, tossed their branches in the sunlight, were still holding the places that God had given them, and making fine seats for the girls or bases for the boys when they had played ball at recess or noon. And often, when the shouting youngsters had been called from their sports by the rapping of the teacher's ruler at the door, and only the busy hum of their childish voices came floating through the open windows, a venturesome squirrel or a saucy chipmunk would creep stealthily along the fence, stopping now and then to sit bolt upright with tail and air, to look and listen. Then suddenly, at the sight of a laughing face at the window, at the appearance of some boy who had gained the coveted permission to get a bucket of water, the little visitor would whisk away like a flash, and with a morning chatter to his mate, would seek safety among the leaves and branches of the forest, only to reappear once more when all was quiet, until at last, made bold by many trials, he would leap from the fence and scamper across the yard to take possession of the tallest stump, as though he himself were a schoolboy. Sometimes a crow, after carefully watching the place for a little while from a safe position on the fence across the road, would fly quietly down to look for choice bits dropped from the dinner-baskets of the children. Or again, a long, lazy black snake would crawl across the yard to search for the little mice that lived in the foundation of the house and in the corners of the fence. Or perhaps a chicken-hawk, that had been sailing on outstretched wings in ever-narrowing circles, would drop from the blue sky to claim his share of the plunder, only to be frightened away again by the sound of the teacher's voice raised in sharp rebuke of some mischievous urchin. The schoolhouse was not a large building, nor was it in the least imposing. It was built of wood with a foundation of rough stone, and there were heavy shutters which were always carefully closed at night to keep out the tramps who might seek a lodging-place within. And there was a woodshed, too, where the boys romped upon rainy days, and where was fought many a schoolboy battle for youthful love and honor. The building had once been painted white, but the storm and sunshine of many months had worn away the paint, and there remained only the dark, weather-stained boards save beneath the cornice and the window-ledge, where one might still find traces of its former glory. The chimney, too, was old, and some of the bricks had crumbled and fallen from the top, which made it look ragged against the sky, and the steps and threshold were worn very thin, very, very thin. Wearied with his passion for knowledge, tired of his cold facts, hungering in his heart for a bit of wholesome sentiment as one in winter hungers for the summer flowers, the man who sat before his fire that night, with a too heavy and substantial book, crossed once more with childish feet the worn threshold of the old schoolhouse, and stood within the entry where hung the hats and dinner-baskets of his mates. They looked very familiar to him, those hats, and, as he saw them in his memory, each offered mute testimony to its owner's disposition and rank in childhood's world. There were broad-brimmed straws that belonged to patient, plodding boys, and caps seemed made to set far back on the heads of the boisterous lads. There was the old slouch felt of the poor boy who did chores for his board, 
and the brimless hat of the bully of the school. There were the trim sailors of the good little boys, and the headgear of his own particular chum. And there, the man who thought knowledge only in fact smiled at the fire, and a fond light came into his eyes while his two solid and substantial books slipped unheeded to the floor. There was a sunbonnet, of blue checkered gingham hanging by its long strings from a hook near the door. With fast-beating heart, the boy saw that the next hook was vacant, and placing his own well-worn straw beside the bonnet, he wondered if she would know whose hat it was. And then once more, with reluctant hand, the seeker of knowledge in his yesterdays, pushed open the door leading to the one room in the building, and with a sigh of regret, passed from the bright sunlight of boyish freedom to the shadow of his childish task. There were neither tinted walls nor polished woodwork in that hall of learning. But thank God, learning does not depend upon tinted walls or polished woodwork. Indeed, it seems that rude rafters and unplastered ceilings most often cover the head of learning. The humble cottage of the farmer shelters many a true scholar, and statesmen are bred in log cabins. Neither was there a furnace with mysterious cranks and chains, nor steam pipes, nor radiators. But when the cold weather came, the room was warmed by an old sheet-iron stove that stood near the center of the building, with an armful of wood in a box nearby, and the kindling for tomorrow's fire drying on the floor beneath. The desks were of soft pine, without paint or varnish, but cards with many a quaint and curious figure by jackknives in the hands of ambitious youngsters. The seats were rude benches worn smooth and shiny. A water-bucket had its place near the door, and a rusty tin dipper that leaked quite badly hung from a nail in the casing. And hanging upon the dingy wall were the old maps and charts that, torn and soiled by long usage, had patiently guided generations of boys and girls through the mysteries of lands and seas, icebergs, trade winds, deserts and plains. Still patiently they marked for the boy's bewildered brain latitude and longitude, the Tropic of Cancer, the Arctic Circle, and the Poles. Were they hanging there still? the man wondered. Were they still patiently leading the way through a wilderness of islands and peninsulas, capes and continents, rivers, lakes, and sounds? Or had they, in the years that had gone since he looked upon their learned faces, been sunk to oblivion in the depths of their own oceans by the weight of their own mountain ranges? And suddenly the man who sought knowledge and facts found himself wishing in his heart that some gracious being would make for older children maps and charts, that they might know where flow the rivers of prosperity, where rise the mountains of fame, where ripple the lakes of love, where sleep the valleys of rest, or where thunders the ocean of truth. At one end of the old schoolroom, behind the teacher's desk, was a blackboard with its accompanying chalk, erasers, rulers, and bits of string. To the boy, that blackboard was a trial, a temptation, a vindication, or a betrayal. Often, as he sat with his class in the long recitation seat that faced the teacher's desk, with half-studied lesson, but with bright hopes of passing the twenty minutes safely, before the slow hand of the old clock had marked but half the time, his hopes would be blasted by a call to the board, where he would bring upon himself the ridicule of his schoolmates, the condemnation of his teacher, and would take his seat to hear, with burning cheeks, the awful sentence, "'You may study your lesson after school.' After school, sorrowfully the boy saw the others passing from the room, leaving him behind, and the last to go, glancing back with tear-dimmed eyes, was the little girl. Sadly he listened to the voices in the entry, and heard their shouts as they burst outdoors, and— Suddenly his heart beat quicker and his cheek burned. That was her voice. Clear and sweet through the open window of the man's memory it came, the voice of his little girl-mate of the yesterdays. 
She was standing on the worn threshold of the old schoolhouse, calling to her friends to wait, and the boy knew that she was lingering there for him, and that she called to her companions loudly so that he would understand. But the teacher knew it, too, and bade the little girl go home. Then, while the boy listened to that sweet voice growing fainter and fainter in the distance, while he saw her in his fancy, walking slowly, lagging behind her companions, looking back for him, the teacher talked to him very seriously about the value of his opportunities, told him that to acquire an education was his duty, sought to impress upon him that the most important thing in life was knowledge. Of course, thought the boy, teacher must know, and thinking this, he felt himself to be a very bad boy indeed, because in his heart he knew that he would have, that moment, given up every chance of an education. He would have sacrificed every hope of wisdom. He would have thrown away all knowledge and heaven itself, just to be walking down the road with the little girl. And he must have been a little bad, that boy, because also, most ardently, did he wish that he was big enough to thrash the teacher, or whoever it was that invented blackboards. As the man stooped to take up again his too solid and substantial book, he felt that he was but a schoolboy still. To him the world had become but a great blackboard. In his private life or in conversation with a friend, he might hide his poorly prepared lesson behind a show of fine talk, a pet quotation, or an air of learning. But when he was forced to put what he knew where all men might see, when he was made to write his sentences in books or papers, or compelled to do his problems in the business world, then it was that his lack of preparation was discovered, and that he brought upon himself the ridicule or condemnation of his fellows. Unconsciously he listened, half expecting to hear again the old familiar sentence, "'You may study your lesson after school.' After school. Would there be any after school, he wondered. And, after all, was that teacher in his yesterdays right? The man asked himself. Was knowledge the most important thing in life? After all, was that schoolboy of the yesterday such a bad schoolboy, because in his boyish heart he rebelled against the task that kept him from his schoolmates and from the companionship of a little girl? Was the boy so bad because he wished that he was big enough to thrash whoever it was that invented blackboards, to rob schoolboys of their schoolgirl mates. Suppose, the man asked himself, as he laid aside the too heavy and substantial book and looked into the fire again, suppose that, after a lifetime devoted to the pursuit of knowledge, there should be no one, when school time was over, to linger on the worn old threshold for him. Suppose he should be forced in the late afternoon to go down the homeward road alone. Could it be truly said that his manhood years had been well spent? Could any number of accumulated facts satisfy him if the hour was a lonely hour when school closed for the day? Might it not be that there is a knowledge to be gained from life that is of more value than the wintry knowledge of facts? As the man looked back into his yesterdays, the blackboard and its condemnation mattered little to him. It was the going home alone that mattered. What, he wondered, would matter most when, at last, he could look back upon his grown-up school days, the world blackboard with its approval or its condemnation, or the going home alone. It was the time of melting snow. The top of the orchard hill was a faded brown patch as though, on a shoulder of winter's coat, the season had worn a hole quite through, while the fields of the flower plowing made spots that looked pitifully thin and threadbare, and the creek, below the house where the little girl lived, was a long dark line looking for all the world like a rip where the icy stitching of a seam in the once-proud garment had at last given way. 
but the drift in the garden on the boy's side of the hedge was still piled high against the barrier of thickly interwoven branches and twigs, and the cherry tree in its shivering nakedness seemed to be pleading now for spring to come quickly. The woman who knew herself to be a woman did not attempt to walk home from her work that Saturday afternoon. The streets were too muddy, and she was later than usual because of some extra work. Of her occupation, of the world into which she had gone, the woman also was gaining knowledge, though she did not learn from choice, but because she must. And she learned of her work only what was needful for her to know that she might hold her place. She had no desire to know more. Because the woman already knew the supreme thing, she had no desire to learn more of her occupation than she must. Already she knew her womanhood, and that, to a woman who knows, is the supreme thing. For a woman with understanding there is no knowledge greater than this, the knowledge of her womanhood. There was born in her no passion for knowledge of things. She burned with no desire to follow the golden chain, link by link, to its hidden end. In her womanhood she held already the answer to the sum of life. The passion of her womanhood was not to know, but to trust, not facts, but faith, not evidence, but belief, not reason, but emotion. Her desire was not to take from the world by the power of knowledge, but to receive from the world by right of her sex and love. She did not crave the independence of great learning, but longed, rather, for the prouder dependence of a true womanhood. Out of her woman heart's fullness she pitied and fed the poor mendicant, without inquiring into the economic condition that made him a beggar. Her situation she accepted with secret rebellion, with hidden shame and humiliation in her heart, but never asked why the age forced her into such a position. For affection, for sympathy, for confidence and understanding, she hungered with a woman hunger, and through her hunger for these, from the men and women with whom she labored, she gained knowledge of life. Of the lives of her fellow workers, of the women who had entered that world, even as she had entered it, because they must, of the men whom she came to know under circumstances that forbade recognition of her womanhood, she gained knowledge, and the knowledge she gained was this, that the world is a world of hungry hearts. I do not know just what the circumstances were under which the woman learned this. I do not know what her occupation was, nor who her friends were, nor can I tell in detail of the peculiar incidents that led to this knowledge. Such things are not of my story. This only belongs to my story. The woman learned that the world is a world of hungry hearts. Cold and cruel and calculating and bold, fighting desperately, merciless and menacing. The world is but a hungry-hearted world with it all. This, when a woman knows it, is, for her, a saving knowledge. Just to the degree that a woman knows this, she is wise above all men, wise with a wisdom that men cannot attain. Just to the degree that a woman is ignorant of this, she is unlearned in the world's best wisdom. Long before she knocked at the door of the world into which she had been admitted, upon condition that she left her womanhood without, the woman had thought herself wise in knowledge of mankind. In her school days, textbooks and lessons had meant little to her besides the friendship of her schoolmates. At her graduation she had considered her life education complete. She thought, modestly, that she was fitted for a woman's place in life. And that which she learned first from the world into which she had gone was this, that her knowledge of life was very, very meager, that there were many, many things about men and women that she did not know. School could fit her only for the fancy work of life, plain sewing she must learn of life itself. School had made her highly ornamental, life must make her useful. School had developed her capacity for pleasure and enjoyment, 
Not until life had developed her capacity for sorrow and pain would her education be complete. School had taught her to speak, to dress, and to act correctly. Life must teach her to feel. School had trained her mind to appreciate. Life must teach her to sympathize. School had made her a lady. Life must make the lady a woman. The woman had known her life schoolmates only in pleasure, in those hours when they came to her seeking to please or desiring to be pleased. In her occupation she was coming to know them in their hours of toil, when there was no thought of gaining or giving pleasure, but only of the demands of their existence, when duty, pitiless, stern, uncompromising duty, held them in its grip, when need, unrelenting, ever-present, dominating need, drove them under its lash. She had known them only in their hours of leisure, when their minds were free from the merry jest, the ready laugh, the quick sympathy. Now she was coming to know them in those other hours, when their minds were intent upon the battle they waged when their thoughts were all of the attack, the defense, the advance, the retreat, the victory or defeat. She had known them only in their hours of rest, when their hands were empty, their nerves and muscles relaxed, their hearts calm and their brains cool. Now she saw them when their hands held the weapons of their warfare, the tools of their craft, when their nerves and muscles were braced for the strain of the conflict or tense with the effort of toil, when their hearts beat high with the zeal of their purpose and their brains were fired with the excitement of their efforts. She had known them only in the hours of their dreaming, when, as they looked out upon life, they talked confidently of the future. She was learning now to know them when they were working out their dreams, at times with hopes high and courage strong, at other times discouraged, frightened, and dismayed. She had known them only as they dreamed of the past, when they talked in low tones of the days that were gone. Now she saw them as they thought only of the present and the days that were to come. So this woman, from the world into which she had gone, gain knowledge of mankind. And this is the pity and the danger of it, that the woman gained this knowledge from a world that, even as it taught her, denied her womanhood. The sadness of it all is this, to the world that refused to recognize her womanhood, it was given to teach her that which would make her womanhood complete. The knowledge that she must have to complete her womanhood, the woman should have gained only from the life of her dreams, the life that is beyond the old, old open door, through which she could not pass alone. In the companionship, sympathy, strength, protection, and love of that one who was to cross with her the threshold of the door that God set open in the beginning, she should have gained the knowledge of life that would ripen her girlhood into womanhood. For what else, indeed, has God given love to men and women? In the strength that would come to her with her children, the woman should have been privileged to learn sorrow and pain. In the world that would have honored, above all else, her womanhood, she should have been permitted to find the knowledge of life that would perfect and complete her womanhood. Fruit, I know, may be picked green from the tree and artificially forced to a kind of ripeness. But the fruit that matures under nature's careful hand, that knows in its ripening the warm sunshine and the cleansing showers, the cool of the quiet evening and the freshness of the dewy morn, the strength of the roaring storms and the softness of the caressing breeze, this fruit alone, I say, has a flavor that is from heaven. It is a trite saying that many a girl of sixteen these days knows more of life than her grandmother knew at sixty. It remains to be proven that, because of this knowledge, the young woman of today is a better woman than her grandmother was. But as the only positive proof would be her children, the case is very likely to be thrown out of court for lack of evidence, for it seems, somehow, that when women gain knowledge from that world into which they go alone, leaving their womanhood behind, 
they acquire also a strange pride in being too wise to mate for love or to bear children. And yet it is true that the knowledge that enables a woman to live happy and contented without children is a damnable knowledge and a menace to the race. Poor old world, you are so grown up these days and your palate is so educated to the artificial flavor that you have forgotten, seemingly, how peaches taste when ripened on the trees. God pity you, old world, if you do not soon get back into the orchard before you lose your taste for fruit altogether. The knowledge that the woman gained from her occupation made her question, more and more, if that one with whom she could cross the threshold of the door that led to the life of her dreams would ever come. The knowledge she gained made her doubt her courage to enter that door with him if he should come. In the knowledge she gained of the world into which she had gone alone, her womanhood's only salvation was this, that she gained also the knowledge that the world of men, even as the world of women, is a world of hungry hearts. It was this that kept her, that made her strong, that saved her. It was this knowledge that saved her womanhood for herself and for the race. The week for the woman had been a hard week. The day for her had been a hard day. When she boarded the car to go to her home, she was very tired, and she was not quite the picture of perfect woman health that she had been that other Saturday the time of falling leaves. For some unaccountable reason there was one vacant scene left in the car, and she dropped into it with a little inward sigh of relief. With weary, unseeing eyes she stared out of the window at the throng of people hurrying along through the mud and slush of the streets. Her tired brain refused to think. Her very soul was faint with loneliness and the knowledge that she was gaining of life. The car stopped again, and a party of girls of the high school age evidently just from their Saturday matinee, crowded in. Clinging to the straps in the back of seats, clutching each other with little gusts and ripples of laughter, they filled the aisle of the crowded car with a fresh and joyous life that touched the tired woman like a breath of spring. In all this work-stale, stupidly weary world, there is nothing so refreshing as the wholesome laugh of a happy, carefree young girl. The woman whose heart was heavy with the knowledge of life would have liked to take them in her arms, she felt a sense of gratitude as though she were indebted to them just for their being. And would these two, the woman thought, would these two be forced by the custom of the age, by necessity, to go into the world that would not recognize their womanhood, that would put a price upon the priceless things of their womanhood, that would teach them the hard lessons of life, and with a too early knowledge, crush out the sweet girlish naturalness, even as a thoughtless foot crushes a tender flower while still it is in bud. And thinking thus, perhaps because of her weariness, perhaps because of some chance word dropped by the girls as they talked to their school and schoolmates, the woman went back again into her yesterdays, to the schoolmates of her yesterdays. The world in which she now lived and labored was forgotten. Forgotten were the worries and troubles of her grown-up life. Forgotten the trials and disappointments. Forgotten the new friends, the uncongenial acquaintances, the cruel knowledge, the heartless business. Forgotten everything of the present. All, all was lost in a golden mist of the long ago. The tall, graceful girl holding to a strap at the forward end of the car, in the woman's yesterdays, lived just beyond the white church at the corner. The dark-haired, dark-eyed, round-faced one she knew as the minister's daughter, while the dainty, doll-like miss clinging to her sturdier sister, in those days of long ago, was the woman's own particular chum. And the girl with the yellow curls, the one with the golden hair, the blue-eyed and the brown, the slender and the stout, every one belonged to the tired woman's yesterdays. Every one she had known in the past, and to each she gave a name. And then, 
as the woman, watching the young schoolgirls in the crowded car, lived once again those days of the old schoolhouse on the hill where, with her girl companions of the long ago, she sought the beginnings of knowledge. The boys came, too. Just as in the yesterdays they had come to take their place in the old schoolroom, they came now to take their places in the woman's memory. There is the tall, thin lad, whose shoulders seemed, even in his school days, to find the burden of life too heavy, and who wore always on his face such a sad and solemn air that one was almost startled when he laughed as though the parson had cracked a joke at a funeral. The woman smiled as she remembered how his clothes were never known to fit him. When his trousers were so short that they barely reached below his knees, his coat-sleeves covered his hands, and the skirts of that garment almost swept the ground. But when the trousers were rolled up at the bottom and hung over his feet like huge bags, his long, thin arms showed halfway to his elbows in a coat that was too small to button about even his narrow chest. That boy never missed his lessons, though, but when he learned them no one ever knew, for he seemed to be always drawing grotesque figures and funny faces on his slate, or whittling slyly on some curious toy when the teacher's back was turned. He had no particular chum or crony. He was never a leader, but dared to follow the boldest. To the little boys and girls he was a hero. To the older ones he was slim. The woman, by chance, had met this old schoolmate one day in her grown-up world. In the editorial rooms of a large city daily he was the chief, and she noticed that his clothing fitted him a little better, that he was a little broader in the shoulders, a little larger around the waist. His face was not quite so solemn, and his eyes had a more knowing look, perhaps. But still, still, the woman could see that he was, after all, the same old Slim, and she fancied, with another smile, that he often, still, whittled toys when the teacher's back was turned. Then came the fat boy, Stuffy. He, too, had another name which does not matter. Always in the yesterdays, as in the todays, there is a Stuffy. Stuffy was evidently built to roll through life, pushed gently by the special providence that seems to look after the affairs of fat people. His teeth were white and even, his eyes of the deepest blue, and his nose, what there was of it, was almost hidden by cheeks that were as red and shiny as the apples he always carried in his pocket. He was very generous with those same apples, with Stuffy, though one was tempted to think that he shared his fruit not so much from choice, but rather because he disliked the hard work that was sure to follow a refusal of the pressing invitation to go havers. The woman fancied that she could see again the look of mingled fun and fear, generosity and greed, that went over his schoolmate's face, as he saw the half of his eatable possessions pass into the keeping of his companions. And then, as he watched the tempting morsels disappear, the expression on his face would seem to show a battle royal between his stomach and his heart, and that he rejoiced to see the happiness of his friends, even while he coveted that which gave them pleasure. She wondered, where was Stuffy now? She felt sure that he must live in a big house, and drive to and from his place of business in a fine carriage, with fine horses and a coachman in livery, and dine and wine his friends as often as he chose, with never a fear that he would run short of good things for himself. She was quite sure, too, that he would suffer with severe attacks of gout at times, and would have four or five half-grown daughters and a wife of great ambition. Does he, she wondered, does he ever, in the whirl and rush of business or in the excitement and pleasure of his social life, does he ever go back to those other days? Does the grown-up Stuffy remember how once he traded marbles for candy, or bought sweet cakes with toys? And then there was the boy with the freckled face and tangled hair, whose nose seemed always trying to peep into his own mischief-lighted eyes, as though wishing to see what new deviltry was breeding there, and his crony, who never could learn the multiplication table, who was forever swearing vengeance on the teacher, whose clothes were always torn, and who carried frogs and little snakes in his pockets.
and the timid boys who always played in one corner of the yard by themselves, or with the girls, or stood by and watched, with mingled admiration and envy, the games and pranks of the bolder lads, and Dummy, poor Dummy, the shining mark for every schoolboy trick and joke, with his shock of yellow hair, his weak cross-eyes, his sharp nose, thin lips, and shambling, shuffling, shifting manner. Poor Dummy. And, of course, there was a bully, the Ishmael of the school, whom everybody shunned and nobody liked, who fought the teacher and frightened the little children, who chewed and smoked and swore, and lied, and did everything bad that a boy could do. He had a few followers, a very few, who joined him rather through fear than admiration, and not one of him cared for or trusted him. The woman remembered how the schoolboy face was sadly hard and cold and cruel, as though, because he had gotten so little sunshine from life, his heart was frozen over. She had read of him in the grown-up world, receiving sentence for a dreadful crime, and remembering his father and mother, had wondered if his grandparents were like them, and how many generations before his birth his career of crime began. Again and again the car had stopped to let people off, but the woman had not noticed. The schoolgirls, all but the tall one who had found a seat, were gone. But the woman had not seen them go. And then, as she sat dreaming of the days long ago, as she saw again the faces of her school-day friends, one there was who stood out from among them all. It was the face of the boy who lived next door, the boy who had stood with her under the cherry tree, who had put a tiny play ring of brass upon her finger, and who had kissed her with a kiss that was somehow different. He was the hero of her yesterdays, as he was the acknowledged chieftain of the school. No one could run so fast, swim so far, dive so deep, or climb so high as he. No one could throw him in wrestling or defeat him in boxing. He was their lord, their leader, their boyish master, and royally he ruled them all, his willing subjects. He it was who stopped the runaway horse, who killed the big snake, and who pulled the minister's little daughter from the pond. It was he who planned the parties and the picnics, the sleigh rides in winter and the burying trips in summer. It was he whom the girls all loved and the boys all worshipped. Bold, handsome, daring, dashing, careless, generous, leader of the yesterdays. Again she saw his face lifted slyly from his spelling book to smile at her across the aisle. Again she felt the rich, warm color rush to her cheeks as he took his seat beside her on the recitation bench. Again her eyes were dimmed with tears when he was punished for some broken rule, or shone with gladness when she heard his clear voice laughing with his friends, or calling to his mates and her. And once again, in the late afternoon, with him and with the other boys and girls, she went down the road from the little schoolhouse in the edge of the timber on the hill, her sunbonnet hanging by its strings and her dinner-basket on her arm. Onward, through the long shadows that lay across their way, they went together, to pause at last before the gate of her home, there to linger for a little, while the others still went on. Farther and farther in the evening they watched their schoolmates go, up the road past the house where he lived, past the orchard and over the hill, until in the distance they seemed to vanish into the sunset sky, and she was left with him alone. The conductor called the woman's street, but she did not heed. The man in uniform pulled the bell cord, and as the car stopped, called again, looking toward her expectantly. But she did not notice. With a smile, the man, who knew her, approached, and, "'Beg your pardon, miss, but here's your street.' With blushing cheeks and confused manner, she stammered her thanks, and hurried from the car amid the smiles of the passengers. And the woman did not know how beautiful she was at that moment. She was wondering, 
in the hungry-hearted world, under all his ambition, plans, and labor, with a knowledge that must have come to him also from life. Was his heart ever hungry, too? End of chapter 3